0: You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast that covers the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number one, 1977's Rolling Thunder, one of the greatest exploitation-slash-revenge-slash-nomsploitation movies of all time. Written by Paul Schrader, directed by John Flynn. Cody. Yes, sir. I'll go get my gear.
1: Can't just let it slide, Major. They don't have any right to live.
0: There's a storm brewing in this man. They took his arm. They
2: took his family and his soul. His anger is building and it's going to explode. Now, from Paul Schrader, the author of Taxi Driver, comes a new and shattering film about a man poised on the brink of violence. Ruling Thunder, starring William Devane as Charles Rain. He has a purpose. He has a plan.
1: It's only a matter of time. I found them. Who? The man who killed my son. I'll just get my gear.
0: All right, you're listening to the Secret Handshake Podcast. We're going to kick this one off with one of my favorite movies of all time, Rolling Thunder. My name's Jacob Knight, and joining me as always are my co-hosts, Cody Bouchard and Martin Carlson. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. Glad to be here. Yeah, the Mattress King of Austin.
2: (laughs) Yes, it's uh, a weird Mattress King and movies on the
0: side, so not a bad life. So I guess we should explain what the secret handshake podcast is all about. We've got our silly little tagline up front, but let me ask you two. What is a secret handshake movie? I know what it is to me, but Martin, I'm going to ask you first, like what would you define a secret handshake movie as being? I think it's
2: like one of two things for me. It's either as when we've become friends oh, I love that movie too. Like we've both already seen it. It's a film you think either everyone hates or has never seen before. Um, or it's a film that you see a person and you say, I think this person might like this one film. Mm-hmm. And then you show it to them and it just blows them away. And also that, that forms your friendship. For instance, my good friend Steve and I, that's Phantasm. Okay, you know, a film, I showed him Phantasm 10 years ago. All of a sudden, the rest is history.
0: So. Cody, what do you think a Secret Handshake podcast or what is a she- Secret Handshake
1: movie to you? Uh, Similarly to what Martin says, it's just a, a film that you can say to someone, and if they've seen it before and it's not tr- traditionally like a, a mainstream or large release thing, and if it's something that they can also relate to or they, you know, it's something that's special that they hold dear, then you know that you two have like an understanding and an emotional, I don't know, r- relationship, I guess, with each other from that point on. Because it's, it's just telling about you and your sensibilities and how you relate to others, I suppose.
0: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I've been thinking about this ever since we kind of pitched each other doing this podcast together. And the way that I can explain, at least from my point of view, what a secret handshake movie is, is that you're at a party. Maybe it's like, I don't know, you went with your wife or your girlfriend and it's like their work party and you're there. You don't really want to be there you're having a couple drinks, you're basically just doing it out of obligation and you're stuck in like a kitchen or on a back deck or something. And you're in the middle of like a conversation and you're, you know, everybody knows you as like the movie guy or the dork or whatever. And they're like, why does she date him? And you're like, yeah. Look, are you talking about my life right <laughs> yeah, now, Matt? Cause I happened to me many times. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm talking about all of our lives at this moment, but seriously, it's like you're standing there and like, you know, you're bored out of your fucking mind and you're finally like, I'm just going to throw something out there. And you make a reference to like one of your favorite movies and you're like, nobody's going to get this. And then all of a sudden, across the little drink circle or conversation circle or something, like somebody looks at you and you make eye contact. And they're like, that's Repo Man. You're like, you just found a member of your tribe at that moment. Like, I don't even think like, uh, like I do agree with you that, like, you know, movies have been a big part of all of our friendships together for the last few years. But, like, I think it's even something maybe even more superficial than that is that it's just like, oh, man, that dude gets it. Like, he knows what fucking wavelength I'm operating on right now. Yep. Or it's a lifeline for that evening, at least. Yeah, at least (laughs) it floats you through the next hour or two that you're obligated to be at this shitty-ass house party, and you're like, oh, my God, if I drink another Lone Star or another a white, like mango, white claw. gotta <laughs> get me the fuck out of here, man. But um, we should probably lay out like what the format for each week's gonna be is that,, uh, you know, one of us every week is going to pick uh, one of the movies that we have deemed a secret handshake movie throughout our lifetime. And the other two have either seen it uh, or we're basically indoctrinating, you know. Uh, each other into basically our own weirdo religion, and we're deepening our friendship with each episode of
1: this. And a lot of that is going to be you guys indoctrinating me into some film I've never heard of before, <laughs> like you know, Rolling Thunder. I I've, quite,
0: well, some of the ones you've picked I haven't seen before.
2: So. Yeah, right,
1: yeah. Uh, and we should be
0: clear. like We're laying these out in 12-episode seasons. We're all picking four per season. And I got to tell you, as like – maybe I don't want to say the premier movie guy here, but the dude who's worked in film criticism and has managed a video store and stuff like there's definitely one or two on the list that I'm maybe been lying the whole time. And I actually haven't seen. Boom. Mm. So the plot thickens, <laughs> but this week uh, I'm just going to kick it all off uh, with rolling thunder from 1977. One of my, uh, I'm not, I think using hyperbole and saying that one of my top 10 movies of all time, like it's been a film that I've had a really deep, weird personal relationship with both in terms of how much, uh, I enjoy it, but also like I've had at least one major friendship in my life. Uh, not necessarily revolve around this movie, but like rolling thunder played a very big, Part in it. Reinforced by, yeah, reinforced by. um But let me ask you guys first: uh, Is this Martin your first time seeing Rolling Thunder? This is my second time seeing. Second it. time. When was the first time you saw Rolling Thunder?
2: I was on a big Schrader kick. I was living in Atlanta, and I was at um, the Videodrome Video Store. Um, what? Yeah, my, one of the favorite video stores on the planet, and they had similar to Vulcan. Uh, set up by directors. Right. And even if it wasn't a film, they directed it. They were associated whatsoever. So I have been made my way through the Schrader section and seen everything else. And I saw rolling thunder. They just released that one DVD. Was it a Warner brothers archive?
0: Uh, there was like an MGM kind of janky, almost like DVD. it was one of those MODs where like every, you had to order it and they would literally press like the DVDR for that. I believe there was the MGM line. That that was the one and it
2: had, the cover was terrible. It just had like a image in the middle of a blue background.
0: It looked like somebody made it in like Microsoft paint and just stuck Billy Devane's face on there.
2: And I saw it. And also, I had fallen into, like, a John Flynn kick, and he was one of those directors, like, I liked Lock Up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, what else has this guy done? I like Bestseller, And I said, oh, these two are kind of crossing over. It's time to watch this movie. One of the great, weird, pulpy Dennehy roles. Absolutely. And, I mean, rest in peace. Uh, but I saw, I saw Rolling Thunder, and it blew me away. Just, like, kind of... It's trashy at moments, you know, when I first saw it, it felt a little, it felt, you know, that very exploitative and it's American international, right? Yes. You really it. Samuel Z. Arkoff. So, and I was on that kick too, for watching the, the town that dreaded sundown. So all this kind of stuff mixing together. And yeah, the first time I saw it, it really kind of blew me away. And young Tommy Lee Jones, who already looked like he was 80 um, <laughs> and, or we, we can get into that later, but um, interesting to watch it again. I think it's been eight years since I've seen it.
0: Oh, wow seven or eight years. See, this is a movie I watch probably once a year. Um, but Cody,
1: was this your first time seeing it? Absolutely. First time seeing it. First time hearing about it. So tell me, what did you think of rolling thunder? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. It's, I mean, right. It, the end, as soon as the credits roll, you're just like, Wow, that was an amazing like it just especially the fact that the way they roll the credits in the end of it, not to jump around in the timeline here, but they you know, they get in, they kill all the guys, they get their stuff done, they're picking up their wounded, and they're just like, All right, let's get out of here and credits roll. And It's like, yep, yeah, that's what this whole film's kind of about is it's uh it's simplistically ingenious. Like it doesn't get too crazy deep into I don't know. In, but it into like
0: Character building, you think, or like, uh, yeah, plot it, mechanic? Because it really, the plot is very simple. It's a straightforward revenge exactly plot line. Yeah, yeah, I think
1: I think that's more what I'm trying to get to.
0: Yeah, because I mean, for, I guess for those who have never seen Rolling Thunder, well, first of all, stop what you're doing. Shout Factory has a really great Blu-ray, which is the way that we all watched it together uh, this past week, and just do yourself a favor and really. Uh, indulge in one of the great exploitation movies of all time it stars uh, William Devane as uh, Major Charles Rain and he's coming home from spending seven years in a POW camp Uh, he and Tommy Lee Jones Tommy Lee is uh, basically his subordinate um, a soldier who kind of uh, worked under him uh, Johnny Voden one of the great sidekicks of all time, which we're going to have to get into as we get deeper in this movie. But it's it's really about, um, you know, uh, Rain is a broken man. He's been destroyed by the Viet Cong. He's been in this uh, Hanoi pit of hell uh, since ni- from 1966 until 1973, which is where we pick up with them in San Antonio, Texas, where he's arriving home. Um And uh, it becomes a revenge movie because first, you know, for the first half hour we hang out with this guy and we realize like how damaged he really is. Like he has an estranged wife. He has a kid that he hasn't actually seen since he was a baby. He doesn't remember him at all. Yeah. The kid literally has no recollection of his father.
1: His Um, last memory of the kid was the kid barely walking and saying daddy for the first time. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, And then his wife, on the first night first night yeah she can't roll this out like i guess uh, she goes from being like oh we like women wear mini skirts
1: now like that's crazy right to yeah no, no, and then she says do you want me to put one on yeah and he he says no because he's i don't know you know he's been mentally tortured and physically for the last seven years so he's not about hooking up with his wife and then her Next thing to roll into. And yes. she gives
0: him candy bars. She gives him candy bars. Which well, nice. like she
1: did because he had
0: a candy bar that he nibbled a little bit at a time when he was in that prison. Um, but then, yeah, she jumps right into, hey, uh, by the way, I've been having uh, kind of an extramarital affair, which, I mean, in, to her credit, um, she thought he was dead the whole time and started having an affair with the local deputy, Cliff, uh, who picks them up at the airport? Yeah, he's also <laughs> their chauffeur from the airport, which I guess is just salt in the wound at that point,
1: man. Hardcore.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um. She,
1: she's gone from well, my husband's dead. I guess I should move on with my life. And she even says the guy like never made a pass at her. It just they he was around so much, helping around the house that it was just kind of a uh, a natural thing that they those two should get together. Yeah, I mean, just kind of the, the kid needs a father, anyhow. But to well, for her to even go from confesses
0: at that point too, to where she's like it it was almost like they were resisting and it right. just happened like naturally. Like right. neither one of them were like looking for romance, which I think is one of the great parts of that relationship too, is that like Schrader in his original script and then Flynn kind of turns that into the, the exploitation movie that we get, like these are real characters. They're not like the two dimensional sketches that you get in a lot of these revenge pictures, which is kind of what elevates it. Yeah. Um, But she like Cliff has asked her to marry him mm-hmm. and she said, yes. Yeah. And he bluntly and at that point, rain is just bluntly like, I don't think I'm up for any more of this. One of the great Billy Devane line readings, and there's a few. That's a Schrader line, too. It's so just like, I'm done here. (laughs) And then he literally goes to the bunkhouse, uh, makes up his bed to almost be like a one-man... quarters like in the shed out back
1: um mimicking where he mimicking where he was in the jungle same same dimensions of the cell that he was held in in the pow even puts the bed in the same spot and he he sits in it curled up and you know just kind of staring but his underwear right oh it's such a tragic like intro um but also there's guns all over the walls of that thing and there's not a lock on the door
0: Oh, it's Texas, baby. I know, but you're seven year old kid. You live in Texas. This is '70s Texas. Like we're gonna get into that in a little bit too, of like where this ranks in like the Texas cinema pantheon, Uh, because this movie feels
1: straight up like Texas. Like it's a shit kicker movie. Like Devane. um, I imagine Matthew McConaughey was showed this film daily while he was growing up.
0: Yeah. Oh, it was like, you know. Paw Patrol is for like millennial children now. Rolling Thunder was for like the <laughs> McConaugheys when they were growing up. Exactly. Um, but like, it, it kind of morphs very quickly into being a revenge picture because, you know, Rain is honored by uh, the local businesses and stuff. He's given a new Cadillac, they give him uh, a chest full of silver dollars, which one, I always found this morbidly weird is that they gave him one silver dollar for every for day. For every day and it was what 2500 2, you know, 2, 2500 oh. 2550 something like cuz I did the math real quick and I was like holy shit that's fucking 7 years man and like but they give him a silver 2000 bucks in silver dollars which i mean in 70s money like I, I actually looked that up a minute ago. It's like $14,000 today. Yeah, he's just in strippers and blow for at least <laughs> six months. And after. a Cadillac, so he's set. Yeah. Like, he's good. He doesn't need anything. Pimping's easy for him. Um, but uh, he's actually attacked at home uh, by one of the awesomely named villains of all time, an automatic slim, Lucas Skew, and then his kind of Mexican bandito buddies, Break in, they want those silver dollars, and they torture Rain um, by shoving his fucking hand into a garbage disposal. During because he won't tell him where the money yeah, is. Yeah, he won't. He has the money hidden in the house. He won't tell him where they is. And During then which they, he's
1: just having he's reliving flashbacks of his POW days. Yeah. And he's also doing like exactly what the military is trying to do if you're ever being captured and interrogated he's just citing his name and rank and that's it
0: yeah he reduces himself to a number right essentially and then they kill his wife and kid in that front of shocking. him that was shocking uh, and, and shoot him thinking he's dead yeah, and yeah. They, they leave him for dead and then he recovers you know Cliff to Cliff's credit um, Cliff comes to him and is like hey you need to help us we want to hunt these people down and Rain's just like I don't remember anything cause and the whole time you're watching him you're like Yeah, you remember every single detail of these guys, and he sets off on a road
1: to revenge uh, that ends pretty spectacularly. So I have a question. I wasn't, if I'm misremembering this or not, did he and the the guy that's going to marry his wife, did they have a relationship beforehand? Were they friends or anything? Did she say no. something like that in a one line? I, I
2: think there was friend. I think they were friendly, like in a small town kind of way. Yeah, like they knew of each other. Yeah, okay. and when she says Cliff, he knows who Cliff is. Right. Yeah, like it's this. Like, and obviously, he picked them up, but it's like he was around already, and he was still married at that point. Oh, you that's know, right. Because his, his wife took all the kids. The kids to California. Yeah.
0: So she just, left him. Yeah. With nothing, and then well, and that's the thing is Rain and Cliff uh, develop quite. The weird relationship, uh, because, in one of my favorite scenes in any movie of all time, is that um, Rain actually has Cliff torture him in the way yep. that the Viet Cong uh, jailers would by tying the ropes, uh, tying his hands behind his back, with tying a very his arms crude, behind his back, yeah, like, very like a, crude right above the elbow, piece of uh, piece of rope, and then yanking his rope above his head. Higher, damn
1: it, higher, until you hear the
0: bones crack. Yeah, he's, like, goading Cliff the entire time um, to basically hurt him more and more. And it's at that point, and I think this is kind of a great jumping-off point where we can talk about Schrader a little bit, is that we realize that, like, our hero, air quotes in this movie, is probably just as much, if not more unhinged, than the people who, like broke into his house, killed his his family, and left him for dead, like they picked the wrong dude to fuck with. And shoved his hand down a
1: garbage disposal.
2: Yeah. Which was kind of that classic it's interesting, it's been used in a lot of other films since then and before. Like for instance for instance, Under Siege, where it's like, oh we didn't know this guy in the kitchen was a Green Beret. Sure. You know, we met you messed with the wrong guy. You had no idea that he had or that this guy's brother was a, a Green Beret this film at that, that very interesting Who knew
0: that the cook was just gonna fuck shit up? Just kill <laughs> Another and, and like, great Tommy Lee Jones role. Yeah, one of my fantastic.
2: One of my favorite knife fights in movie history. Hell just yeah. Just like knives and also like the scene where they're in the workshop and the skull just shoves guys into random tools and cut them up it's just it's wonderful
0: i always wondered why that workshop was on a naval destroyer (laughs) it was like did they have shop class like what was happening here you know they gotta they gotta gotta, gotta
1: do a lot of woodworking on
2: that big metal yeah (laughs) it's so wonderful but yeah i mean like but off of that i think with schrader is a lot of his films even his films like this that aren't i would say action heavy Um, For instance, American Gigolo, you start this film and you have, which has its thriller aspects as well. Yeah. But you have, you know, Julian who is kind of perfect at the beginning. Like, you see his life, he's got the car, he's got the women, his apartment is immaculate. And as the film goes on, it's like the cracks start to show. Yeah. And I think William Devane, the way that also he's great in this movie, is like he's so, you can tell he's pent up, but it's like he's kind of keeping it together. Sure. And then the film starts to show, like, oh, this guy is, is, We know he's damaged, but oh my
0: God, like he wants violence towards him. Like he's masochistic um, as well. well. I always read it as, and this is the interesting part of the movie. One of the many interesting parts of the movie for me is that there's an intersection of what John Flynn as who is very much uh, the definition of almost like an exploitation, like workman, um, because he made stuff like The Outfit with Robert Duvall. He made uh, Defiance with uh, Jean-Michael Vincent. Lockup, as you said, with Sylvester Stallone. Um, he also he made a Seagal movie, too. He made Out for Justice. I love William it. Force. Yeah, I love it. One of the great, if not the best, early Seagal movie. Um, That's the pool scene, right?
2: Where he breaks the guy's face? Yeah, with the pool. where he, he has the pool oh, cue. And just the, and heaven. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and my
1: God. Is it the it, one where he gets, uh, he's in a coma for a while and then he has no, to that's, he, um, like, retrains himself out of the farm? It's hard, hard to kill. Hard, hard to kill. kill. Yeah.
0: yeah. Because you have Nico above the law, hard to kill, marked for death, which is insane. Um, and then you also have Out for Justice, which is the John Flynn one. And that's the one where he's he's going after uh, Bill Forsyth, mm-hmm. um, who's a real maniac. Um, but. The one thing that I really like about it is that you have Flynn making this movie, obviously for AIP, to who was a lot like the Corman factory. Who's that? They were making movies for drive-ins. They were making movies for grindhouses. They were. Uh, you had to hit a very specific like content or deliver a very specific content for them that was going to put butts in seats. And kind of just stay at, like, right around 90 minutes and just deliver the the goods, let's say. And you don't have to pay too much attention to some of those films. Yeah. That,
2: that It is playing on a screen. You can't hear it too well. Yeah. You know,
0: you're doing whatever in your car. One well, like, and then Schrader, who we should note disowns this movie uh, to a certain degree. He disowned it for a while. Um, and I want to get into that when I talk about my connection to it, is that he... He wrote this originally because he wrote. He became big with Taxi Driver, uh, writing that for Martin Scorsese, Um, and then he wrote Obsession for Brian De Palma, another movie that he disowns because they completely excised the third act of that, Um, and he hates like the final cut apparently because it takes place in three different time periods, and apparently like the De Palma at the advice of uh, Bernard Herman the composer uh, excised the third uh, basically movement of that script that that's how, that's how the- you
1: know when you're just making pure cinema gold when the director is listening to the composer and taking an entire act well I mean out of that's himself. the
0: composer from psycho so I mean I'm I'm probably gonna take a, a nod or two from him and be like yeah because Herman was basically like yeah you can't do it in the future that's Anticlimactic.
2: He had a, he had a similar moment too with uh, First Reformed, where yeah. the original ending was that uh, Ethan Hawke blows up the church, and then Scorsese <laughs> saw it. He's like, they "Their buddies, he's like Paul, you can't do that." He was <laughs> like, "Why?" Like he's like being chided by Scorsese, and he convinced him to yeah. change the ending. You know, and it's a similar kind of thing. Like
0: he wanted to go hard. Well, and like Schrader's um, original vision for this is that he saw. Rain as being a spiritual companion to Travis Bickle, two guys who you know served overseas uh, and were kind of permanently damaged because of it. Um, but his original vision for Rain, and you can find the script online. it's a totally different, not totally different movie, but he's a a much more, Focused character, let's say, um, because he saw Rain as being a white trash racist. This is an exact, like, word for word quote from him, who never fired a shot in Vietnam, was basically shot down because he's an Air Force pilot, and kept in. He becomes a hero, essentially, almost like a John McCain type, because he. Uh, was kept in this prison and basically survived it. And that's his claim to heroism. But when he comes back, he basically goes on this uh, road to revenge. And that becomes his like blaze of glory because he, apparently it was when he was working as a film critic, he came up with the idea uh for like a suicide mission while he was visiting the ed- the editing bay with sam Peckinpah's the wild bunch and he wanted to make something similar to the wild bunch about like everybody dies in the end and in his original script it's literally about um all of his racism bubbling over and he goes down to uh, Mexico, a lot in the same way uh, that he does in, in this version, only he just goes on a rampage and kills like every Mexican that he sees and
1: in turn ends up dying. Um, so, is his family murdered in that version? Too? Yeah,
0: okay. like the same structure is. So, so when he goes down there, to Mexico.
1: Is he targeting specific people or is he just. Or is he he's just
0: targeting like- specific people.
1: But it's, like,
0: it's his outlet to basically finally, like, enact all of this horrible... Because he's very much a, a, a like, white trash, like, good old boy type from Texas uh-huh. who, like, complains about, like, uh, the Mexicans are coming in and taking our jobs and blah, blah, blah. And, like, he makes, like, very... Everything from, like, passive racial remarks to full-on just racial slurs the entire time. And so that road to revenge is, like, it become, it almost doubles as his, like, excuse to finally, like, enact this revenge because the Mexicans, in his mind, are no different from the Viet Cong who kept him chained up for seven years.
2: It's interesting to, like, compare that to Taxi Driver where you have Travis is looking for a new war, right? And yeah. so... It's very similar. The, and Travis, you know, the end, and the, the, you know, the, the perfect ending of Taxi Driver is... Him being lauded as a hero, right? When it was just coincidence that he happened to save this girl, right? In in a way, it's like everyone looks at it. Oh, he saved Jodie Foster's character, but he was looking for someone to kill. Yeah, and he did it.
0: And he found, and that's he found it. It's very much the same way as like Rain. I mean, to the point that Travis Bickle in the earliest drafts of Rolling Thunder, Travis Bickle is in rolling thunder as a cameo for a scene to where there's a moment where rain goes and sees deep throat at a local drive-in and Travis Bickle is there and they, they never exchange words or anything, but they, uh, make eye contact. And, um, as Schrader himself told me once it was in his mind, rain and Bickle were two ships passing in the night, two gunships and that that's what that was always intended as being that's a nice distinction yeah Um, now uh, I guess to kind of kick off uh, a personal connection which each one of us will do every week is that um, one of the reasons that I wanted to pick Rolling Thunder first is that uh, this podcast while not exclusively is going to be a quote unquote cult film podcast I did want to Kind of use some of the selections to explore the idea of how cult films have evolved, and in my mind, don't really exist in the way that they used to when maybe we were kids. We're all in our let's say mid to late thirties, yeah. Um, and how we experience a lot of these films like you can't do that anymore. Like it just doesn't happen. Like I first saw Rolling Thunder on the old Video Treasures VHS at from the West Coast Video at the bottom of the hill from uh, my home in this little suburb outside of Philadelphia. And I will never forget watching it for the first time. This is the same video store and I'll bring this place up a bazillion times throughout the course of this podcast. How old were you? Oh. Fifteen or sixteen, yeah, probably. It was formative years. Yeah, like, but this was the same one of the same video stores. It was either that or Blockbuster, because it was still right. during the the nineties heyday of Blockbuster when, uh, you know, I would find stuff like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer or Blue Velvet or Last House on the Left. Like it was all that shit that like you weren't supposed to see at a certain age, but like, yeah. Because of video stores, you found them. And Rolling Thunder was always one of those uh, that had the very salacious, tantalizing VHS cover, to where it's it's Charles Rain on the cover with his shotgun and his hook hand. Because after he gets you know his hand shoved in the garbage disposal, it's he's fitted for a new hook. And it's him swiping it at you. And I remember seeing that as like a 14, 15 year old dumbass and just being like, this looks like the greatest fucking movie of all time. And I finally got to see it. But it wouldn't be probably like I would be married the next time that I saw Rolling Thunder because I was big on like the chud.com like message boards and things like that. And one of my good friends. Uh, Phil Nobile Jr., he was big into Rolling Thunder. I remember him writing it up a couple times, like, on the message boards, and me being like, oh, yeah, I remember that movie. It was fucking badass. But, like, at the time, you know, you're a 14, 15-year-old kid. You don't have all this knowledge about Paul Schrader or, uh, you know, John Flynn or AIP. You just watched it as, like, this badass fucking movie to watch. Yeah, You know? So, like, I remember him talking about it, and I was like, oh, there's got to be a DVD out there. And this was before MGM and Warners and stuff were doing the movies on demand or, like, uh, you know, where you could basically contact them and get them to burn you one. So, I, I looked, and it didn't exist. Like, for the longest time, Rolling Thunder was actually hard to see to the point to where I went and found a fairly janky bootleg copy that looked like somebody had essentially transferred the VHS uh, onto like a DVD-R and they made some very uh, crappy kind of cover art, put it in a jewel case and sent it off to you. But to me, that was the only way to see this movie from like, you know, 10 years ago or whatever it was that I, I couldn't see at this point. And I remember revisiting it and it was just as good as I remember. Um, so flash forward to years later, I'm writing about movies professionally. Rolling Thunder is then one of these movies that shout factory, you know, restores and releases. Thank God, you know, bless them, bless the vinegar syndromes, bless the arrow videos of the world. Like they're the ones who are making cult movies readily available, but at the same time are also to me diluting them to a certain degree because like, you know, you can log on to shutter now and stream cannibal Holocaust, which cannibal Holocaust was one that I remember tracking down a handwritten or like a hand labeled bootleg on VHS to see it for the first time. Like cannibal Holocaust was like finding a fucking snuff movie at a certain point. (laughs) But like, um, you know, years later I'm writing about movies. I'm working at birth movies, death in the Alamo draft house. And I get to interview Paul Schrader and I'll I'll never forget them asking me. They're like, Oh, do you want to interview Paul Schrader? And you're like, What? (laughs) Uh sure, I'll interview the guy who not only wrote Taxi Driver but Raging Bull, Last Temptation of Christ. He wrote and directed American Gigolo, Light Sleeper. Yeah. Uh, I'll sit down in the uh, in a karaoke room with my dumbass and Paul fucking Schrader, and he was the nicest dude ever. But like, I got to actually ask him about Rolling Thunder and uh, like his relationship to it and everything, and he told me a story that I'll bring up later about how Lawrence Gordon. And uh, he basically hired on Haywood Gould to come in, who would go on to write like Boys from Brazil and everything. And they reshaped his original script to just be a more straight ahead, palatable uh, re- revenge picture along the ways. So that is my relationship to it. Well, I'll add one more thing. I'm a big poster collector. Like I collect original one sheets, I have them framed, they're up on my walls. And Rolling Thunder is one of the ones that I have in me and my girlfriend Carrie's uh, movie room. And the reason that one never leaves the wall, not to get too mushy or emotional, is that I had my own copy years ago of the Rolling Thunder poster, From 1977, from its original theatrical release. I had found it on eBay for like $10. It was back in the days where you could seek out these original one sheets on eBay and not even pay that much for them, you know? And uh, me and my wife at the time, the townhome that we had, it flooded and it destroyed that and a couple other posters that I had. And I was just
1: devastated.
0: No, they were in like a plastic sheath. That basically was in like a little chest in the middle of the living room. Okay. That those like if they were on
1: the wall, you had some serious water damage.
0: Well, the the roof in our living room collapsed in. Jeez. And just because we had a slow leak that basically just let all of this water in and like destroyed all the stuff, just flooded everything, killed the TV, blah blah blah. But years later. You know, I've lost this poster. I've made. I've become really good friends with Phil Nobile Jr. I ended up working with him at both Birth Movies, Death, and Fangoria. We, you know, we wrote together. And right before I was moving to Austin, I told him the story about my Rolling Thunder poster, and he was like, "Man, that's so fucked up." And I was like, "Yeah." And he goes, "Hold on, I'll be right back." We're at me and my old my ex wife Sarah are hanging out at his house. He goes, he goes off for, like, a couple minutes, and he comes back, and he hands it to me. And I look. I It's just the back of a poster in, like, a, you know, clear plastic sheath. And I take it out, and I unfold it, and he has a copy of the Rolling Thunder poster. And he's like, take mine um, so that you can put it on the wall. And that's why that poster never really comes down. Is because I basically always have this poster for my friend uh, hanging on my wall with me. That's awesome. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with questions. Santa.
1: Been a while, but you've been on my mind. I've seen your rolling hills and winding rivers so clear that I could almost make them.
0: We're back with questions about 1977's Rolling Thunder. Uh, Since this is episode number one, we should probably explain how this goes. Um, Each week, uh, the individual who picks the movie is also going to pick eight questions about the movie that they want to ask the other watchers. uh, Just to see what the hell they think about some things, both in life and the movie itself. Um, So I had one question uh, to start off with, is this the best revenge movie of all time, Martin? No. Okay, go on. Um, it sounds like Plato Cody's dog also disagrees with that assertion. Yeah, he so. g- he gave a little, mm, um, <laughs> and then he fucking left the room. He was like, "I'm fucking out of here." He's like, "I don't even like this question. This podcast sucks." I would say for me.
2: Personally, my favorite revenge film was probably Point Blank with Lee Marvin. Mm. Um, You're going back to like, what's that, 50 years old now? Yeah, it's 68? like 68? It was like 67 or 68? Yeah. yeah. Um, I was, I'm also thinking of that because it's like that. That was um, Donald E. Westlake, right? Who. Yes. Yeah. So it's that kind of. There's that kind of quintessential, and you have. Films like Payback, which are basically telling the exact same story, yeah, um, same character too with Parker, right? Yep, same character. Um, that's a personal
0: pick. I would just say I prefer Point Blank. Also, a John Borman movie, which is quite good, indeed. And, and Steven so- Soderberg like notes that one as being like one of his greatest influences. John
2: Borman and I, I,
0: I love John Borman. Like, yeah, he's. I even like the Emerald Forest. Like Do you if guys. That's the first R-rated movie I ever saw. No bullshit. The Emerald, the Emerald Forest, the he, first. He, is it The Emerald Forest or The Emerald Rainforest? Emerald Forest. Is it Emerald Forest? He wrote a
2: journal about the making of that film, and it's batshit fucking crazy. It's just like a they published the journal of him making that movie, and it's amazing.
0: Okay. So, anyway. Well, I mean, they all were. I mean, he was on, what, Mescaline the entire time when he made Exorcist 2? Mm-hmm. So, like... The man loved his drugs. Let's calm down, you two. We're gonna need to keep you to a dull roar. Uh, Cody, yeah, is this the best revenge movie of all time?
1: Uh, it's definitely up there. Okay, what's the best? Uh, is it Rolling Thunder? I mean, it's a completely different category. But if you go, I like other that ones you've like, sidestepped uh, saying yes or no and have just been <laughs> like, well, it's up there. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I, I just categorically don't have too many like bests of like anything in my. Opinion. Like I don't have like a favorite song or anything. We're gonna need to change that for the podcast. (laughs) Um be more hyperbole for the podcast. Yeah, be like, this is the best. This is what people tune in for, not some wishy washy bullshit like, Oh,
0: you know what? I think everything's
1: equal. (laughs) Well, I mean, so a different you know kind of genre of a film, but like I spit on your grave, like that's a pretty good revenge one. Damn, you went hardcore. Uh, Martin
0: went old and you went hardcore. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, isn't that... That's the movie that has the longest rape scene in existence, Probably, right? yeah. Yeah, three yeah, guys. Yeah, like Joe Bob Briggs like timed it during his one DVD commentary for Jesus. it. Jesus. Yeah, it's pretty... That one's gnarly. Um, you know what? I'm going to be real. I will probably also agree that it's not the best revenge movie of all time. I think... This might be sacrilege, but I actually think Kill Bill might be the best revenge Dang, movie yeah, of all time. Call. Also, I mean, I mean, there's a guy who was so in, you know, with Quentin Tarantino was so influenced by Rolling Thunder that he named his own very briefly lived uh, distribution distribution company. distribution company after Rolling Thunder. It was like Rolling Thunder Pictures. 'Cause they put out like Switchblade Sisters, the Jack Hill movie. They put out that real weird, like, nineties movie Curdled at one point. And then And the Protector
1: mostly...
2: with Tony Ja. Yeah. That was, was also in the like, theaters.
0: Repertory stuff, yeah. Some some new stuff. Is yeah. that the one with the elephant? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, that's Wait. that's Ong... I thought that was Ongbok. Are you um, mixing them up?
1: Ong Bak doesn't have an elephant. Doesn't? No. Am I mixing them up in mm-hmm. my head?
2: Yes, Protector is about his pet elephant being stolen. And killed. And killed for for the um, crazy rich rich tourists who want to eat, like, panda and, like, elephant and stuff like
1: that. Who Wait, doesn't want to eat panda it's and It's skeleton elephant? also gets put on display in yeah. somebody's house or something. And he that's finds right. And, has okay. down, and then he uses the elephant skeleton as, like, body armor. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. That's right.
1: Does God
2: exists, because that's amazing.
0: So question number two, uh, this goes back to me interviewing Paul Strader at one point is that he told me a story. One of his biggest gripes with the movie um, is uh, Billy Devane's casting actually is that he, he told me this really weird this not weird story, but a story from when they were making the film is that he did an imitation of Lawrence Gordon, the producer who looked at him and went we cast the lead as the buddy basically straight out saying that tommy lee jones should have been the charles rain uh, character and billy devane should have been the 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 johnny Voden character so my question is this do you think this movie works better with tommy lee jones in the lead or billy devane should just you know be lauded f- until the end of time for his performance as Major Charles Rain.
2: I think I like him as the lead. Yeah. Um, I think he doesn't have the chops, obviously, that, that De Niro has, I think, in Taxi Driver. And sure. I don't think they were trying to get that from him in this film no. um, at all. But he's so, we talked about this when we were watching, he's so pent up. Like, he's mm-hmm. so, and he's so trying to keep that straight-laced, like, the way he's talking, he's, like, very methodical, the way he speaks, like, no, I'm good, I'm fine, like, everything's fine, and I think he, I think he just works perfectly, I don't know if it's because he's a good actor, because when I think of William Duvain, I think of, like, the kind of roles he plays, yeah, and it's he's always, like a
0: lifer character actor.
2: Yeah, and he's just very straight laced, you or know.
0: Tommy Lee Jones became a lead later in life, exactly. Even yeah. won an academy, like he won an Academy Award for what The Fugitive. For fugitive, so that's yeah. That's like a supporting role, but still, it's like he steals the entire movie. Cody, what do you think? Do you think the movie works better with Tommy Lee Jones as the lead?
1: No way. I like the way it plays out as it is, and Tommy Lee's. Uh, he just plays that backup buddy so well. I mean, like he did at the, at the top of the thing when he's just, oh, I'll get my tools or what, I forget what the line is. I'll go get my gear. Yeah, and he just goes to his closet. He's ready to go. He's like, yo, hey, let me pack up my guns here and uh, I'll come help you kill a bunch of guys. No problem. I think there's something interesting to bring up there
0: too with Johnny Voden is that he seems like where Rain is almost like an empty vessel, which is even how Schrader like uh, described Uh, rain on the page is that there's nothing left like basically the the viet Cong have completely taken like everything out of him like soul wise um johnny voden and tommy lee jones in particular like really brings us out as like this guy when uh, charles rain shows up on his doorstep which is in one of the few like humorous scenes in the whole movie is when they show up at his doorstep and he's like I found the guys who killed my son and he's just like, I'll go get my gear. Like yep. it's just so flat, but it's also like, he's just waiting for the opportunity to kill people again. Like where rain, they say didn't fire in the original draft. Didn't fire a shot in Vietnam. Like Johnny Voden killed people. He probably killed a lot of people. A and lot of years on necklace. Yeah. I think, yeah, that he, even the
2: way even the film as we see it like when we first meet Tommy Lee Jones is them you know arriving at the airport right and the way that Tommy Jones is playing
0: this part is he looks really dead inside like he and he also looks like he looks twitchy Well, he's also terrified like he even has that exchange with rain where he's like I don't know how to face all these people and he just says just put, put, your, glasses put your glasses on, glasses on yeah, yeah. He, he's he's twitchy he's got he's
2: all freaked out and then like you know rain i think rainmore is very much just like he's stone cold you
0: know and what do you
1: think that it is that he doesn't want to face uh, like the people his family
0: yeah i don't oh, think he uh, wants to i i think it even goes deeper than that i don't think he wants to face reality or existence like they've they being in a a hanoi pit of hell to steal directly from Christopher Walken in Pulp Fiction, like I think that's made it to the point to where like, and I think that's a big point of the movie is that they can't face reality as the, as they knew it, you know.
2: Yeah, and I think yeah, with Tommy Lee Jones too, like when when rain comes to pick him up and it's like, Hey, I found the guys like he's in this like domestic hell. It's like his wife, his yeah. brother, and they're just like sitting around. You can tell
0: arguing over like buying a TV and yep. whether or not you would buy one of them Jap TVs or you would buy American. It's I buy American. Buy, and buy he's, American.
2: he's so ready to get the fuck out of there.
0: And isn't his, it's not his dad, but is that his brother that, is it his, well, no, it's his dad, because he has that great moment where he basically says goodbye to his dad before they leave. Him and his dad are on the, like, they have an understanding, they're on the level. But Martin pointed out that the guy who plays Franklin from Texas Chainsaw, is that Johnny Voden's brother? It's his brother, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Brother or brother-in-law. Yeah. Um, I always, I can't figure out what their relationship is, because, like, Franklin's got a fuckload of lines in this movie.
2: And it's weird, it's like three years, it's three years after after texas chainsaw and it looks like he looks a lot older like he has the mustache like the part he plays in texas chainsaw is it's like the brother the kind of like annoying brother and now it's like he's this like
0: dad he almost looks like the Dunkin' donuts guy who used to do (laughs) the commercials and would be like it's time to make the donuts right you know that guy made a lot of money he did make a lot of money as the donuts guy he'll always be the donuts guy to me so uh question number three I'll start with Cody this time. Mm. Could or would or even should you remake this movie
1: today? I think that you could or no. I think that it would be hard. to. I'd like to see a remake. Yeah. Martin?
2: I would not. Um, I think that this is one of those films that feels somewhat like lightning in a bottle. And, sure. and I don't think the story is unique enough that you need to tell it again. You know what I mean? Again, it's like we're saying it's like it's not a very complex plot. It's very much like it's
0: more based around the characters themselves. The characters and the fact that this
2: this purple, this perfect storm of Schrader and Flynn and American International. Like, even though you're saying that, like, I've not read the script, but a lot of changes were made. But like, I like the film the way it is. Sure. Because it is this perfect thing of like, this is Schrader turned into a straight exploitation film by a rewrite. All right. I just don't think I would ever want... It's like, for me, Assault in Priest 13, I didn't
1: want to watch... That remake was terrible.
0: What? That yeah. remake fucking rules? Nah, it doesn't work for me.
1: Oh, uh, dude. I think that they could do a remake, put Tom Hardy in the lead, and you get it directed either by Tarantino or the Coen brothers. I'm going to tell you guys, I actually have a pitch for a remake of this
0: movie, but it's based off of Schrader's original script, only it flips it. Because Schrader always had this famous uh, quote about... So all the about, Mexicans kill him? Uh, Actually, kind of. Is that... Um, Schrader always had a quote about this movie about why he disliked it is that he's, he always said, I wrote a movie about racism and they turned around and made a racist movie because he always saw rain as being basically like the embodiment of American racism, like during Vietnam, like rolling thunder even takes its name from like the call sign That uh, the Air Force used when they were doing bomb runs like in, you know, Vietnam, Cambodia. Uh, But I always had a pitch based around that idea is that what if you made a modern Rolling Thunder during the Trump era? Only you made the lead a Mexican-American man or maybe two Mexican-American men who are coming home from war like, you know, Afghanistan or something. And they find out. That their hometown has been turned into essentially like an ice prison, and they have to come in and break out like and kill all of these like racist white people who have taken over their town, and they come in and like just go on a total suicide mission to free like their family members.
2: All of that's like it's like you think about. We just had Rambo Last Blood. Yeah. Which is so reactionary, which is like it's so right way. It's so, I love it. I I well, love is a strong term, but the, I enjoyed my the end thirty minutes is some of the most batshit like violent cinema I've seen in a long time. Yeah, so taking it out of context, I loved that, but man, that
0: film was fucked up, like just like the ideology, but. I it's gotta, real gross. But he, again, kind of like in John Rambo, turns into Jason Voorhees for like the last 15 minutes and is just decapitating cartel members. When he tells the guys,
2: like, you took my heart, and he rips the guy's heart out and shows it to him. Yeah, it's well, real it's, gross. It's, it's some like, Temple
0: of Doom, like racist shit. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Uh, so question number four, and I'll start with Martin. Where, did this, where does this rank in the Texas uh, cinema pantheon?
2: Oh man. So I don't have as much of personal connection with it as you do. Right. You know? And I just recently watched it for the first time in a long time.
0: I it's would pretty high. It's a real Texan movie. No, we I, would, even I would say
2: the Linda Haynes' character. I would yet. say top five. Yeah, top five? Yeah, because for me up there you got like Blood Simple.
0: Like what are the most Texas movies of all time? For I me, have my picks.
2: I would say Texas Chainsaw, Blood Simple. Shit. Um no country for old men. Yeah,
1: that's what I was going to say.
2: Um, honestly, this. And then I'm trying to think, there was another one. Oh, oh, um, we're Texicans. Is it is Searcher, Searchers is Texas?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I, would do, I would do. Oh, no, sorry. No, no. No,
0: Searchers is New Mexico. No, it is Texas.
2: It, and I would um chat Liberty Valance is Texas. And I would do that.
0: Right. I um, haven't named mine yet. Cody, you are a born Austinite. You're—I yep. mean, both me and Martin are transplants. From what I'm from Philly, and you're from Ohio, uh, Indiana, by way of Sweden. Yes. <laughs> So, Spania. But you're a you're I'm a born a Austinite. Third Where does this rank for, like, Texas filmmaking for you?
1: Uh, what did we leave out, though? What was the – Oh, shit. What's the McConaughey? The, oh, Dazed and Confused. Yeah, I forgot days and, and Confused. Dazed and Confused? Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely up there. Uh, no Country for Old Men was the other one that immediately came to mind. That and, like, maybe, like, just think of Tommy Lee Jones in Texas movies, The Three Burials of Mel Estrada. Estrada.
0: Mm, that's a strong one. That's deal. He directed
1: that, too. Yeah. I'm going to
0: tell you mine. Cold I, in July, I forgot. But sorry. Oh, Cold in July, also great. Lone Star. Oh, shit. John yeah. Sayles. I'm an asshole. Yeah. I fucking love that movie. For me, that's Dude. the greatest Texas movie of all time is John Sayles' Lone Star. I saw it in a with hotel a with my young, dad. Oh, my God. And we just,
2: we watched the whole thing. We started, it was on HBO, and we were supposed to go out to dinner. We skipped it and watched the whole movie. I was like, I was like 15. That's incredible. Amazing.
0: That's another one sort of like... Rolling Thunder to where like I don't want to say it's difficult to see now, but that movie never made the jump to Blu-ray, right? Like it's It's still only in like one of those shitty. The last time I watched it was from Vulcan Video and like an old shitty like Warner Brothers standard def like DVD. There is, I believe, an HD HD transfer on streaming. Oh,
2: I believe I saw it. It was like I might go
0: home and watch that tonight.
2: Yeah, I I bought the script when I was in LA last time, and I because I I love it. I love sales so much.
0: It's such a good fucking movie. It's too. just, oh, God. The tortilla transition. He's. It, <laughs> man, there's a, there's a transition involving tortillas that might be the, I'm, and I'm not, it is funny to say, but it, it honestly might be one of the greatest like moments of editing, like in cinema history. So um, Lone Star
1: could be included on this podcast in the future. It yeah, should be. I don't know that I've seen it. I really? Think, yeah. Oh, God. I know there was a TV show for a short time with that same name, but...
2: And, Kelly, like, you you brought up, like, like Days of Confused. Like, you just, we can't forget Letter. you don't know? Like and, 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 like, I... That goes without saying. Also, us
0: recording in Austin, like, if we didn't mention Link Ladder, it'd be like, He'll bust through the door personally and just kick our asses. Yeah, I think, like, in order for you to officially, like, say, like, I live in Austin, you have to have, you have to at least claim some kind of, like, connection. You have to be like, well, I saw Rick, like, filming down the block. And it was totally cool. Or like I ran into him at like the tortilla house. Or my
2: whatever. cousin
1: was an extra in Boyhood, like yeah. ten years apart. I know yeah.
0: eighteen
2: people who are in that movie.
0: Like just in brief. Parts. I think I know a couple. Yeah, I was just but that's like, what I mean. Is like you, you you can claim Link Ladder if you live here. Now I do my next question. Uh, while we were watching this, you know, the big shootout slash bloodbath um, at the end of the movie takes place in a brothel. Both of you said that you're not down with going to a brothel. And I want to explore this idea. Like, you guys aren't cool with brothels?
1: Uh, I'm not cool with STDs.
0: Well, nobody said that you needed to get STD. Like, condoms exist, motherfucker.
1: Yeah, but that doesn't stop all STD transmission. I'm not saying
0: it. But, Martin, you wouldn't be down with going to just, like, a cheap $20 Mexican brothel? It, for me... It's not even the STD thing. It feels like the
2: most ex- exploitative place to be. Oh,
0: so you're coming from a woke position.
2: Not even woke. It just feels, not even woke. It just feels like you're really seeing like human cargo in person. Right. And I would just feel like complete fucking shit. So you there. would say that sex work is not work? I would say it is work, but in that situation, I would feel like <laughs> I am part of the problem, not part of the solution.
0: I'm going to tell you what. I'll plow through a Mexican brothel. I'll plow through two. <laughs> You put some cocaine into that equation, lights out. You might never find me in Mexico again. (laughs) Some say he died knee deep in cocaine and pussy. He died the way he lived (laughs) cocaine and pussy. All right. So, question Carrie will be very happy to hear this. Oh, she's never going to listen to this podcast. (laughs) Question number six uh, Do you prefer Schrader, the writer, to Schrader, the filmmaker, or vice versa?
2: I. Took a turn recently on that. Yeah. Um it used to be I was like just writer. And I, mm-hmm. I was like just as a I was like, this guy's the writer. I don't see the big deal as him as a director. Sure. And then I saw cat people and he did not write that. And it's a wild fucking movie. And I love Is that a
1: David Bowie film?
2: He wrote he wrote the song, the theme okay, song, yeah. yeah. Um I love that movie so much, that early eighties like these you know, these remakes that Universal was doing like that and like the thing and then get the not they didn't do the fly, but that same early eighties kind of early mid eighties remakes of of like fifties horror films and mm-hmm. that movie showed that he just got some crazy ideas. And then also I like I like Dominion, which he did write the original screenplay for. Ooh. Just moments of I'd like I like obviously compared tough. compared to fucking the beginning. Like, I kind of like the Rennie Harlan one. and I believe me, I love Harlan, but I don't know. I I think if I had to choose, I'd say I prefer him as a writer. I, I would think I'd have to, if I had to come down to it. But doesn't mean mm. I don't respect him. Like I think like First Reform is beautifully directed, um, and it's the direction
1: is as good as the writing in that film.
0: Cody, what do you think? I'm
1: not really versed enough. I haven't seen any of those, uh, so I'm gonna have to say just as a writer because I've never seen anything he's directed.
0: All right. I got to tell you, the one thing I do love about Schrader, especially early Schrader, is the genre stuff that he wrote with his brother Leonard Schrader. Yakuza. Um, Yakuza, and then Old Boyfriends. I don't know if you've ever seen Old Mm. Boyfriends before. It's a movie with uh, Talia Shire, and it's one of John Belushi's— actually, I think it might be John Belushi's only uh, dramatic role— Um, But imagine almost like the female version of High Fidelity of like a woman going back through her uh, past loves. But in the late 70s, really great script. Also, Leonard Trader, his brother would go on to make, uh, in my opinion, the best American Mondo movie of all time with the killing of America is that he made basically a Mondo doc about the violence in America and how out of control. It got from everything from like street killings to serial killings. It's off the chain. Like, uh, one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. Severin put it out on DVD and, and Blu-ray a couple years ago, and it's a real like mind melter. Um, so you should definitely seek out the killing of America.
2: I just think of them. I think of reading easy riders, raging bulls and them riding Yakuza where they're like back to back, not sleeping. Yeah. And just like coffee and cocaine and just writing. Just like... I think they're in New York at that point. I think so too, And there was that little... They had a little apartment they were sharing. They were just like... I think they wrote it like six or seven days. Something stupid. Pretty quick. And the
0: Yakuza is a fucking good movie. I've actually never seen that Robert Mitchum? Yeah, Robert Mitchum. Directed by Sidney Pollock. Shit. Wow. Um, Really, really good. Uh, I mean, I... Don't know which I prefer because, I mean, Schrader, as a director, has made some masterpieces. I mean, you brought up First Reformed early. Mishima for me, too, Mishima. in my films, yeah. Um, I'm actually not a huge American Gigolo fan. I think it's really good. I just think it gets kind of the same way with, like, Hardcore, is that you can feel his Calvinist upbringing and hang-ups kind of, uh, kind of bleed in there because— it gets a little too preachy or moralistic for me, especially with American gigolo. You know, we joke about sex work being work, but has a very, uh, I want to say negative view of sex work and almost damning view of it. Well, absolutely. And it shows like there are moments in that
2: film that remind me of like cruising where you see the world he came from Mm -hmm. and like the, the, the way also it has this like idea of the, like the hints they make of the things he had to do. Right. to be this high-class gigolo. It used to be like, no, you were working like the leather bars. Yeah. You know, in back rooms, like mm. giving hand jobs. And it shows this dark history for him. But it's very, you're right, it's very judgy. Yeah. Of the, of the world he's... Of the Hardcore world.
0: in particular is very, very, much. very judgy. Um, but then, I mean, I think Blue Collar is, I mean... It's weird that his, what, first directorial effort mm-hmm. is probably still his masterpiece. Also, one of the great Harvey Keitel and Richard Pryor performances. Also, the movie that almost made him quit filmmaking because Richard Pryor apparently, like, threw a chair at him. Shit. And, yeah, there's some real crazy stories about Schrader working with Richard Pryor in, a dram- like, a dramatic sense that, like, it didn't go well. Wow. Because, I mean, Pryor was still just smoking crack and being out of his
1: mind. So this is before he lit himself on fire? After, I believe. Because oh, wow.
0: this is 79, 78, 79, I want to say. It's 78 or 79, yeah. yeah.
2: I watched that first time. It was, like, on TCM. Like, I couldn't even get it on DVD, and I watched it on TCM one time. Like, I
0: waited till it was on. Kino just released a nice Blu-ray of on yeah. that one. That's when we might cover down the line, to be honest. Um, now, let's get to one of the big ones I want to ask with every episode is, what would you double feature this with? Martin, I'm going to go with you. Um,
2: so, earlier, my original thought was the getaway, which I mentioned last week when we were, wa- when we were watching this. Yeah, just like which is great. And I San just,
0: Antonio set.
2: Yeah, it's just like, well, I mean, like the end, the shootout, just the hotel, which is a hotel versus a, a brothel, but the same idea.
0: I think... Well, you get to pair it with Peck and Paw, which originally, you know, uh, was like inspired you said, the, the yeah. impetus. Um,
2: but I'm um, between that and between, honestly, Blood Simple, which we just mentioned earlier as well. Ooh. I just watched Blood Simple this week because we watched this, and I got in a mood to watch Blood Simple, and I, think I watched it on Friday night.
0: That's a tight what, eighty-seven minutes? Yeah, or it's it, it's
2: under it's under ninety, and I know you love your. I'm the same way when it comes to thrillers and genre. It's like. Get under ni- get under ninety four and we're happy. Yeah, you're at least three stars. You know, it's happy. like slasher film. Slasher film shouldn't be over eighty five, in my opinion. Yeah, you, know? if you and do one star. It's yeah, and
0: <laughs> maybe two because if the murders are inventive.
2: But for me, Blood Simple, I think like, and I didn't realize Blood Simple. I was watching it was shot all here and in Hutto. Yeah, and I have liked Blood Simple for a long time. I hadn't seen Blood Simple though for like five or six years. And it's always one of those. I love the Coens, and I'm always like, "Oh, I love Blood Simple." But I hadn't watched it. I forgot how mu- how much I love that movie. Yeah, like it's so kind of fucking perfect. And it, it's your first feature is like, "Fuck you." Yeah, like, it's seriously. Wild that you're
0: like straight out of the gate. They're fully formed filmmakers. It's
2: a Cohen film. It's not like one of those guys. You're like one of those filmmakers. You're like, okay, they're getting there. Like. I feel I would actually compare it like you watch like Thief from Michael Mann, which wasn't his first feature, his first theatrical feature. Yeah, because you, you know. got
0: Jericho Mile before that. Which yeah, is, I just revisited it about a month ago, and that movie is awesome. Yeah,
2: and his or, you know, and he had I don't know, another film I'd like to talk about some days, Straight Time, you know, which he wrote the original mm. screenplay for. Her. And we have these guys who come out of the gate, or um, you know, female directors as well who come out like, "Hey, I'm here. Like this is the story I'm going to tell." And Blood Simple, it's it's so Texas. Yeah. Like it's and it's like that Texan Noir. Um
0: and see I would play I would pl- I think I'm gonna pick Blood Simple. Okay. So yeah. Cody?
1: Taxi driver all day long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean Just I know do the two cousins in the night. Exactly. I mean I know it's pretty uh on the nose, but they both feel so connected. Also I mean, any excuse to just watch Taxi Driver is pretty great. Absolutely.
0: And like, if you if you programmed Taxi Driver and Rolling Thunder at a theater, especially here in Austin, you would sell it out in like a day. So like that that double bill, I would show up for. I'm gonna. You actually mentioned my pick earlier. Is it Cold in July? Yeah. Oh shit! I, I watched it earlier today, man. It's so good. What a great film. I forgot how great. Cold in July was until I revisited it. Have you seen this, Cody? Nope. It's Jim Mickle, 2014. Joe R. Lansdale, Texan. Yeah, uh, Joe R. Lansdale uh, novel that he's uh, adapting with Nick D'Amici, uh, his usual uh, uh, co conspirator, mm-hmm. who also makes uh, an appearance in the film as a janky, uh, corrupt local deputy in East Texas. And it all takes place in East Texas, 1989. Michael C. Hall plays kind of just a uh, low-rent shit-kicker. Framer. (laughs) Yeah, he literally owns a framing store. Um, Oh, that kind of Framer. Picture Framer. Picture Framer. Like construction Framer. Ah, Picture Framer, who he kills a guy in the middle of the night who breaks into his house, and he gets embroiled in this seedy, like, shit-kicker noir... Uh, Dixie Mafia Dixie Mafia that keeps getting deeper and deeper as you go along Um, he initially gets uh, stalked by Sam Shepard who thinks that he killed his son his son was the one who broke into his house and he thinks he killed him in the middle of the night. Well, some there's a shitload of twists and turns. Um, Don there, Johnson shows up. In one my Don favorite Johnson roles shows ever. up as wow. a as a, a private investigator. How many times does he put on and take off his sunglasses? A few. Actually, he does a few times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean he's great in this movie. It's Howdy Doody time. <laughs> <laughs> they that movie's I think perfect. I. I
2: Mikkel, and Mickel's doing Sweet Tooth, the Jeff Lemire adaptation for Netflix. Oh, I didn't um, know. that. he, he uh, just
0: made uh, Under the Dark of the Moon, um, Under the Shadow of the Moon.
2: Sha- Shadow of the Moon, just Shadow of the yeah. Moon.
0: Oh, is it just Shadow of the Moon? Yeah. I saw it at Fantastic Fest. It's pretty good.
2: For me it didn't for me, I saw him do Stakeland and I'm like, this is pretty good. Yeah. And then he does We Are We Are I'm like, Wow. It is Cold in July, and I'm like, Holy I hate shit We
0: are what we are. But I thought it, it was a
2: It was boring, but I thought it was like as a filmmaker, he was growing, and then you hit Cold July, I'm like, this guy's here. And and then of course, like um, Happen Leonard, he did the TV show, like all the episodes, which is another Joe Lansdale series. Yeah. Um and my friend's film Pale Door, which comes out on Shudder next month. It's a Juar Lansdale story as well.
0: Yeah. So um, it's interesting. It was just like he's he's all over the place.
1: Um,
0: yeah. it, it uh, the one thing about Cold in July that I noticed rewatching it today before I came over to record with y'all is that it's both skews very close to Schrader's original vision because it's very much about a guy who uh, is meek has never fired a shot in his life and who goes on this journey to where by the end, like he's a killer, but just like the rest of them, a good guy, but remains a killer. And then it has that amazing Mexico shootout at the end where they're going and hunting snuff filmmakers. It's, it's dark is wild.
2: What's really cool about it too, is like with, um, with Lansdale, I was, I was watching an interview with him. So what kind of, I read quite a few of his novels. He does he never outlines, he never outlines.
0: So he's like King. It,
2: it's like King, but if, and especially with a story like that is, it's just like, he had an idea, you get this meat guy, he's a framer. And then you have like the dip into the night world, right? There's this other thing going on. And then it just goes deeper and deeper in turn and turn and turn, um, to that film. And sure. I, I adore, it's like one of my favorite films of the, of like the century. Seriously.
0: Um, it's a great one. Also has that crazy John Carpenter score. Like mm-hmm. it's one of those movies that feels influenced by John Carpenter, but isn't one of those like John Carpenter, like fan film types that like Joe Bagos makes and shit. And you're like, Oh, just stop it. Uh, no, <laughs> no comment. <Yeah. laughs> and so the final people question, are going
2: to listen to this and, uh, you know, yeah, there you go.
0: I I'll get all the hate mail. Just direct it to Jacob Q night at Twitter.com. Awesome. I'll be there. Um, He's used uh, to it by now. God. Kevin Smith, shut up. But
1: uh,
0: (laughs) uh, the last question of the podcast, and I think we should close every episode with this one, is this movie, and it's going to be a term we're going to have to define, is it a certified face melter? Mm. First, what do we mean by that, Martin?
2: I think it's the film – it just blows you back against the wall. You know, yeah. when, you, when you're watching a genre film, it's like, holy fucking shit. Like, what did I just watch? Um, again, just as an example, showing my friend Phantasm. It's so wild and wacky and just, it it's just so much going on. that That's, that's for me a face melter. Yeah. The first time you watch Phantasm, you're
0: like, it's, it's rough, it's weird. It's like unlike anything you've really seen before. Yeah,
2: and, and I think it's one of those things like when, um, like Rodriguez and uh, Tarantino did Grindhouse, I said, we want to make films to match the posters. Sure. Right? And I feel like Phantasm is that one where like, you like, see the poster with like a silver ball, and it's like the movie is as crazy as the poster.
1: So, yeah. What do you think, Cody? What's a certified face melter? Uh, something that just doesn't take its foot off the gas. And really, you know, uh, I think the, like, the Hitcher is a good one to, to put under that. Yeah. It literally yeah. doesn't yeah. take its foot <laughs> off <laughs> exactly, the gas. Exactly,
0: yeah. I think there's... The one thing I do want to ask, though, do you think the audience experience is central in defining a certified face melter? Because for me, it is. It's one of those things where, like, if you had a house of 300 people and you unleashed this movie, would it destroy their brain or rewire it the way they think forever? And I think Rolling Thunder fits that bill.
2: That's yeah. interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, For me... If looking at it like that is it will it make them think differently? Yeah. Yes. I will so for are we or Is it
0: a, just an experience you'll look back on and be like, fuck. That time that I saw Rolling Thunder in a theater, just I think half of my face is still singed.
2: But there's other films too, like I think that don't age well that I did have a face melting experience with. Name like one. I saw Paranormal Activity, two thousand nine. That's true. When it first went on and now it's been diluted by other found footage. But when I, I saw that when and it And all the sequels. Before Did you
0: see it at the South... Was that a South by one? No, this
2: was actually... In, so Atlanta was one of the places where if you got enough signatures, they would bring it to your theater. Oh. And so the Plaza Theater, which was like the indie awesome theater in Atlanta, went right near Videodrome uh, Video Store. And I got I got three tickets from my buddies, uh, Matt and Ari and, and Matt, the two Matts. And we just sat there, and it was just like, holy fucking shit. Like, just... That experience, but I've tried to watch that movie, and I still respect the hell out of that movie. It really
1: screwed me up! I couldn't uh, sleep in my it was, room that it night. It was
2: terrifying, but watching it again, it does not, it doesn't stick with me. No. It, it,
0: it didn't, it didn't change me. What do you
1: think, Cody? Rolling Thunder, face melter? Yes or no? I, don't, I wouldn't classify it as a face melter. I did Ooh. love it. It was great, and there were moments in it that genuinely like shocked me and took me by surprise, like when uh, just. Real quick, off-camera, bang, bang, wife and kid are dead. Like, that genuinely, I didn't see that coming at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a great movie, and I especially loved... At the end, when the credits roll, like, right after all the action's done, like, I just loved that out. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, it's definitely a film that I would recommend, and that I'm going to remember fondly, but I wouldn't certify it as a face-melter.
0: I don't actually know if I would either, to be 100%. I think it's a great film. I don't think it... Meets face melter status. I would agree 100%. Yeah. yeah, there's a difference between the two, and this doesn't quite qualify. So, our first uh spine number one for the Secret Handshake podcast not a face melter.
1: Our faces are, in fact, still room temperature and applied to our skulls.
0: I don't even know what you're saying right now, but I think <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I think for me, like,
2: why it's not a face melter, real quick, is like. There's things that are set up where if this were a, if this were a complete trashy exploitation film and not like it didn't have the touch of like sincerity from Schrader, him sharpening the artistry, the artistry, him sharpening like his um, hook. his his prosthetic hook mm. would play more of a part. Yeah. It, it, that it, especially like you're saying, being on this amazing poster, like it would be a film of. There'd be a murder montage. It, it, it would just be a whole thing or of like him slashing montage. through, <laughs> slashing through hoods and, and hoodlums, right, and just killing. Yeah. killing Bronson. And seriously, um,
0: that it would be that film. All right. So yeah. So I think that wraps up our first episode of the Secret Handshake podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Tune Thank you, in everyone. Next week because cody's pick is next and it's gonna get kind of wild oh and yeah there's some swords involved fuck yeah so tune in and we'll see you next time